You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hello, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Tuesday, March 1st, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake here with Tony Greer, editor of the Morning Navigator newsletter, and Marco Papik, chief strategist at the Clock Tower Group. Welcome to both of you. Uh, as we were just talking about, another really volatile day in the markets, Ukraine continuing to dominate the action. We have crude prices jumping as much as 11%, copper, aluminum soaring, the Swiss franc hitting a seven year high. Uh, and you get the sense that this is really still unfolding, these moves. Marco, let's start with you. Uh, it's hard to wrap your head around the ramifications of some of these events happening really simultaneously. What's top of mind for you as this crisis unfolds? Well, I think top of mind for me and for every investor should be the fact that this is occurring in a very complicated macro environment. Yeah. You know, I mean, we've had wars since the Second World War, many of them. And I'll tell you this, 99 out of 100 didn't bother the markets at all. The one that did, and that I keep sort of referencing, is the Yom Kippur War. It occurred in a macro context that was already inflationary. The Fed had been raising rates for over 12 months at that point. You had the dollar collapse after the Smithsonian Agreement at the end of 1971. And so that context was already pernicious. And you throw this supply shock from OPEC. Uh, in 1973, that was just you know the cherry on top of an inflationary Sunday, and that pushed us off into a recession at the time. So I think the macro context is really important, even more so than geopolitics. You know, and I and I'm the geopolitics guy, basically yeah. the markets, and I think that's something we all have to fear. And one complicates the other, doesn't it? So talk to me about how you see this. We're we're going to dive in with Tony about some of the market dynamics are happening, but you know from that sort of geopolitical point of view. What? How does this play out in the energy sector? We saw Shell today following the move by BP. You know, oil companies pulling out of Russia. We've got the nat gas situation, which is you know even even worse and so extreme in terms of what we're seeing in prices. Where are we in this in terms of market reaction, and how do you see this playing out? Well, you know, I think tactically speaking, uh, Russians are hitting against a wall of constraints, material constraints that. You know, a lot of Western analysts didn't think existed, um, but those constraints are really meaningful and I think are going to uh, make it very difficult for Russia to achieve its objectives, whatever those are. If it's to take half of Ukraine, um, basically east of the river Dnieper, uh, I think that's going to be extremely difficult for them to do. So I do still think that there is an off-ramp at some point where the Russians basically declare mission accomplished, whatever they decide that is, and uh, you know, move on, basically use this as a punitive action. However, while that may still be the case, there is a whole slew of other decision tree dynamics, branches on the tree that are really pernicious. You know? And one of them is that uh, Vladimir Putin may be a lot uh, more risk-averse or less risk-averse than Russia as a country. You know, Russia as a country may have a lot to lose from this um, war, but he himself may not. 
And that means that he continues to drive forward with basically uh, some sort of an occupation of Ukraine, which I got to tell you is an unfeasible scenario. He's not putting in a puppet government in there. The United States of America had difficulty in Iraq, and that was a country where 60% of the population welcomed the U.S. because it was ruled by a minority Sunni dictatorship. There is no minority in Ukraine that's pro-Russian, not even in the East, not even the Russian speakers. And that's something that isn't really emphasized enough in the West. And so we're looking at a prolonged insurgency. We're looking at complete loss of Russian exports, potentially, um, especially oil. And on top of that, on top of that, you have a, an incredible subset of potential accidents. You know, when you turn on the afterburners of a Sukhoi over Kiev, you're in Poland in 17 seconds. I mean, we're talking potential accidents that can happen. I mean, remember when Russia and Turkey got into that spat with the fighter jet that was shot down mm. uh, during the Syria uh, operation? Well, here you're talking about OECD economies. You're talking about NATO countries. And so the subset of military accidents is vast. Um, so I, I think it's a mess. I mean, again, I think the constraints are so large that Putin eventually figures things out and and, and gets an off ramp. Uh, but I don't think does, does Putin can... does Putin survive this, and does it matter? I don't think there's any scenario where he survives this. I mean, I, I'll, I'll give him twelve months, and I'm taking under. Mm. Okay, um, wh whichever scenario he takes, if there's an off ramp, it's gonna it's gonna be a sour taste in the median Russians. Uh, sort of mouth, you know, like this, mm. even if they get an off-ramp, declare mission accomplished, we've degraded Ukrainian military capability sufficiently to protect the Russian-speaking population, blah, 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 blah. You can create a narrative where this was a victory, but 12 months later, it's going to look bad because of the economic destruction in Russia. The second option where he keeps going, I think eventually, you know, the Russian state wakes up and realizes how negative this is uh, for Russia. So I, I think... I think he doesn't, but I'm not sure that really matters in, in the meantime. In the meantime, what matters is whether uh, Russian military becomes aware of their constraints of trying to occupy a country that's double the size of Iraq in population and territory with a much, much weaker military than the United States of America, and actually numerically less superior. They went in there with 150,000 troops as if they're expecting a picnic. It's it's honestly uh, a very haphazard approach. To yeah. Let me let me ask you. I'm curious if if is there a scenario w w the damage that we see being done to the energy markets in terms of prices of the of, of Russian supply taken off the market is that easily reversed? Say in a scenario, is there a best case scenario in a scenario where you know Russia doesn't go along with it one way or the other? Putin sideline they they find an off ramp. They, can can you turn that around again quickly, or is the damage done and it's going to take a long time to? get that supply moving again. Where are we in that in that equation? Well, remember, a lot of the Russian uh, oil that goes to Europe is piped. Uh, and second, uh, there's carve-outs in SWIFT to allow for energy exports. That tells you everything in terms of like the European unity. Uh, now, that unity will get, like, again, if this continues, and if indiscriminate shelling of civilians continues, I think you get the worst-case scenario. If there's an off-ramp, then yeah, you don't need to lose any of the Russian exports. Um, over the next, you know, 12 months, if there is an off-ramp within weeks. Now, look, in 2008, Georgia, there was an off-ramp. And this is something that I would just say, I wouldn't be putting on any long-term bets right now, because the 2008 Georgia scenario, which was a punitive operation, and then Russians pulled into South Ossetia and Abkhazia, the two regions they wanted. In that case, in the early stages of that war, and I know this because I didn't sleep for six days during that war, watching it very carefully, um, you didn't know which scenario you were in, total annexation, occupation of the capital, Tbilisi, or some sort of like a punitive action. 
And that's why I would just say, like, right now, we can't make these long-term bets. Um, obviously, this is all bullish commodities. I mean, there's reasons to be bullish commodities. Anyways, Tony's going to, like, wax poetic yeah. on this much better than I can. But I just think that, uh, you know, we're still in that phase where we could be surprised three weeks from now with an off-ramp by Russians, either because pressure on Putin grew immense or because he himself finally realized what the material constraints to this operation are. And, and as you can see from the field, they're pretty vast. Yeah. And playing out, uh, even though there's a lot of misinformation out there, there are also a lot of journalists there because of social media. In many ways, this is playing out in front of the world to see. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. We mentioned that oil complicates the geopolitical factors. Uh, and certainly that's the case when it comes to India, which is a heavy oil importer, and China. China is really interesting here, maybe not for the near term, uh, but but as we sort of think about how this may change global geopolitics and many people trying to figure out whether you know China and Russia are as close as, as we thought they were, whether China's not happy with this. You have a very different take on this, a very interesting take on this. You think China's peaked as a geopolitical power? That seems to be a very, uh, you know, a very interesting. Talk, talk to me about that proposition. Yeah, I mean, like, I think uh, China's trapped in very many different ways, and we don't have to go into the details. I mean, look, I think demographically, I think in terms of their household um, ability to keep leveraging themselves, I think investors just ignore the fact that uh, basically what China did in the last decade is massively leverage its private sector. And I know other people have talked about this, but we're at the point where they're now you know, facing um, an economy where any further stimulus is basically pushing on a string. Uh, they're going to have to double down on investment-led growth and SOE-led growth, the stuff that they are telling us they're not going to do. Um, and also exports are the only really source of growth for the past two years and are going to continue to be very important. So, you know, China uh, made a rhetorical nice treaty. Everyone cites this meeting between Xi and Putin. Like, someone should email me what concretely was done. You know, they said they love each other. They hate NATO. NATO should have expanded. Cool. Did she tell Putin he can go and indiscriminately uh, shell cities? Did he tell him that he's cool with $200 oil? Hell no. Right? So I think Beijing is right now, like, freaking out because if there is a global recession, they no longer have the lever of stimulating domestically. They're actually going to suffer more than anyone else, potentially politically as well domestically, because what they've been doing over the last 18 months has hurt them in many different ways. Um, so yes, I do think that China has peaked. Doesn't mean that they're going down, to be clear. They're still the mm. second most powerful country in the world, but they are at peak. They're trying to resolve internal problems. They're going to be focused domestically. The last thing they want is the stuff that's going on. Also, I think one thing just briefly I want to mention, when you talk about Russia-China uh, Russia alliance, let's just be very clear. They don't have the infrastructure between the two countries to make that reality. There's some oil pipelines and some natural gas pipelines, but they're a joke. You know, the latest pipeline Russians built to China is 27 BCM. Russia exports 200 BCM to Europe. And for you to switch all of that to China, you're going to have to spend half a trillion dollars 
pulling Yamal Peninsula natural gas to Beijing. That will be the greatest infrastructure project in the history of mankind. I'm not saying they can't pull it off. I'm just saying it's going to take another five, 10 years minimum for them to actually have the sinews that bind a genuine alliance other than just a rhetorical flimsy. So yeah, I'm not sure Beijing is happy at all. I think, you know what it is? Russia and China were two teenagers in the summer months. It's hot. They're on the edge of a cliff looking down into a nice, cool pool. And Russia looked at China and said, you're coming after me, buddy, right? And China said, right behind you, buddy. And then Russia jumped off and China's like, any rocks down there? <laughs> I hear my mom calling. That's what's <laughs> happening right now in Beijing. Wow. I, I, that, that's a fantastic visual that's going to stay with us um, and, you know, does make a lot of sense. I, I, I'm curious about, you know, bringing us back to that macro picture. So those macro dynamics you're talking about overall, everyone grappling with energy already, inflation, different dynamic in China where they're trying to, you know, pop some of those bubbles that have been created. When we're seeing safe havens where people kind of kind of look for protection, uh, you know, we, certainly we've seen some of that, and and there are concerns about strains in the financial system and liquidity. Um, do you worry about any of that? And you made an interesting comment about treasuries and the fact that we're not seeing that we have seen yields go down. U.S. Treasury yields go down. Certainly, we were knocking on the door of two percent, and the ten-year back down by one point seven. Should it be lower if we're seeing, given all the events that are unfolding and and the extreme safe haven flows, would you expect that to be lower? You seem seem to say it should have been and it's not for good reason. What are you watching there? You know, I think that commodities are the new safe haven. And this is something that when I talk to institutional investors, I actually talk about how like risk parity today, like the bonds may have been replaced with commodities. Um, and so, you know, I think that uh, the bond market did rally last two days, finally, you know, after ignoring this conflict for basically three months, uh, it finally kind of woke up to it. But I think still that commodities are a clear play. They were even before. And I think the macro context here that I go back to is that Yom Kippur War, where you know we basically already had a commodity super cycle for a number of reasons that Tony can expand on. The green agenda, lack of capex, stimulus, demand, supply. And I just think that over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to have real good indications whether we're going to be uh, facing our first geopolitical recession since that 1973-75 or not. And, and I think a lot of that will de depend on how fast oil prices rise and whether that becomes pernicious to growth. Now, you could argue that, you know, as some people I really respect in the macro space, oil prices relative to net worth um, is actually really low because net worth of American citizens has exploded. But the problem is you can't cash in your stocks and your like home equity to pay for oil. I mean, I guess you can, but like, you know, that's that's difficult. You've got to use your disposable income. And so, yeah, I do think that we are in a very, very important moment. By the way, the yield curve was telling us this before China-Russia. You know, the yeah. yield curve wasn't happy about what was going on with the Fed hawkishness. The, the, the long hand wasn't really moving that hard. And now we have even more of a problem. So I, I do worry that where this is getting us, if, if Putin doesn't pull a Georgia 2008 scenario, if this lasts a lot longer, then I, I do think we're facing a recession in 12 to 18 months. Marco, fantastic stuff. Um, we need so much more time, but we are going to be covering this every day um, and trying to sort of bring up some of these issues that aren't talked about enough. So thank you so much for that. Um, we're going to we're going to shift you out and bring Tony in. Hopefully you. you'll stay and, and have a listen. But I, I know, know what, I, I what Tony's going to say. 
<laughs> yeah, go ahead. But, 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 we got a we got a lot to get through with Tony. So Tony, let's bring you in. And I see you. Uh, I can see Tony off screen shaking his head. Commodities are the new safe haven. Does that how it, does that how it feels for you? Maybe this was already happening before. They're, this. Always, they're always a safe haven for me, Maggie. You know me. <laughs> Um, so, what, so what? So I'm gonna let, let's let's bounce right off with of the question um, because I think this speaks, and I know you're watching some of the dynamics happening inside the market, and I want you to go through them with us. But we got a, an early question from Doug saying, uh, "Tony, can oil go higher? How do you manage this trade?" And I think that's an interesting part of the question. Oh, that's a different question altogether than what's going on in the markets. Absolutely. Right, start with start with what's going on in the markets, though, because I know you're watching this. Okay. Okay. Um, what's going on in the markets are, you know, spreads have gone batshit crazy today in response to taking Russian supply offline from the energy markets, right? I, I've got to put that into context, Maggie, because this is a little bit of a supernova if you're trading spreads. For example, six-month calendar spread in Brent is now a $13 item. For some context, that was a $3 item to start the year this year. Six-month calendar spread in WTI is now a $17.50 item because there's no oil at Cushing at the moment. Um, that kicked the year off at $3.50. Um, just for some more context, that was a $0.25 cent spread when we were an energy-dependent country under the last administration. So I think that that's something that really clearly plays into um, you know, how the world is going to shake out from here. It's extremely timely that all of this is exploding the day of a State of the Union address, yep. um, where we're going to learn that cutting off pipelines, canceling drilling leases, spilling out your SPR $40 ago, all of that stuff has consequences in the oil markets. Um, you know, we're now contending with the national gasoline average price of $360 a gallon, up from $2 a gallon from right before Biden got elected. And so a lot of this is coming to a head, like Marco said right now. And I, uh, one thing I learned is that I'm going to start listening to Marco a lot more often because he's got a lot of great insight as to how this conflict is going to play out, really opened my eyes to some possibilities that I didn't know were possible. But that's the story in the energy markets right now, Maggie. And as we've said, and as we are seeing, higher prices in energy for longer mean higher prices in grains, higher prices in base metals. What's going on in the grain and base metals markets? Both of them are breaking to new highs for the move. Base metal markets are breaking out to historic, never-before-seen levels. And this is all happening as we're supposedly about to pivot into a massive electric infrastructure to support energy. And as we can see, and um, as Jared Dillian brilliantly captured in a tweet, wokeness is a peacetime luxury. And I think all of that is coming to uh, coming to a head on the screens right now. We can attack it in whatever angle you want to attack. Yeah. Well, I know you're also watching um, some rotation that was happening today. What are you seeing there? Yeah, today's really interesting day, right? Like, um, you know, we've got commodities, gold miners, industrial miners, um, you know, still rallying to new highs. The only thing in tech that's rallying is cybersecurity. That sector, uh, the, the sector is hack um, because we're in this huge confrontation now. I think it's really relevant today that Bitcoin and Ethereum caught a bid um, as we're seeing, obviously, massive capital flight from the ruble. So crypto is doing cryptocurrency things and holding when people think that it shouldn't be holding its level. 
Um, you know, as yields go higher, many of us think that crypto is going to be going lower. So today is an interesting story in crypto. And that's that's what we've got, Maggie. It's a really hectic rotation based on, you know, a lot of it is due to the Ukraine-Russia conflict, but it is exacerbating a scenario that we saw heading into that, which I've just been calling the great rotation where commodities rally, rates have to go higher to adjust, and you see technology and some of the fast-moving momentum stocks uh, those liquidity plays start to back off finally. So that's what I feel like today, Maggie. Yeah, we we, uh, we have a qu- uh, question here, and I know this is another area that you're watching um, from David. Any reason the Ukrainian war has affected the carbon trade so negatively? This is uh, uh, something that's kind of falling apart that you've been watching right as right before we came on air, I believe. Yeah, well, you know, I think the first uh, the first tip off that the carbon market was going to come apart. Um, was when yesterday Europe wanted to list guns and ammo on their ESG assets, right? So that killing your enemies can get some funding, for Christ's sake, right? So that was one thing that kind of blew a little bit of a hole in the um, ESG carbon capture, uh, carbon neutral operation. Um, we also have a story where, and it's Italy business lobby said, we've got to suspend the EU carbon credit market Obviously, during this Russia conflict, if we're going to work on saving ourselves from an attack, let's worry about carbon footprint a little bit later, if that's okay. So now you see the collateral damage, KRBN, off 12% in one day. It's Mm -hmm. broken all three major moving averages in four sessions. That is a cause for an alarm, right? After the sector just um, consolidated for about three or four months straight while we went back and forth in debate um, you know, about carbon credits, about what the price of oil was going to do, about the Ukraine conflict. Clearly, war is inflationary, and it's bad for the woke people that are pushing the carbon neutral prices all over the place. Yeah. Um, Tony, it's it's the, you know, we are beginning a new month, although with, with a lot of trepidation, given what's going on. I mean, we just see massive moves in some of these uh, some of the markets that you follow really closely. Is the past going to be any guide, given the fact that there's so much uncertainty now? Like, you know, how do you look at what's just happened? Yeah, you know, I'd love to check back, Maggie. Yeah, I love that we're be able we're able to talk on March 1st today because I, you know, scrub the month-end closes really closely because there's always tells in it. Um, you know, what do I come away with when I look at February's rotation is that it's more evidence of this great rotation that we're talking about. And let me illustrate that. Bloomberg Commodities Index up 6% to a new high, third um, third consecutive month in the black. NASDAQ down 3.5%, second monthly uh, negative month of the year. Um, we're seeing XME explode, industrial metals and mining up 25% last month after consolidating for almost a year. That is a crisp breakout that is just getting started. Um, you know, and the biggest thing for me last month was that market-based inflation expectations finally turned a little bit. We had uh, the curves that were collapsing rushed into the Russia-Ukraine conflict. They've clearly stopped collapsing. We had break-even five-year in a a clear uptrend, and we've hit some turbulence, um, you know, trying to figure out how the U.S. economy is going to go. As soon as we stepped into the Russia-Ukraine conflict, new highs in the break-even five-year. So that's market-based inflation expectations telling us 
the market is back to seeing the inflation that the commodity markets are shouting about right now. And I don't want to leave out that last question about the gentleman about managing the oil trade. If you'd like me to answer that, I yeah, will. That, yeah, that would be awesome. And I just want to throw into the re- I, 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 um, as I'm going through looking through some of the questions and I'll try to get to them specifically. But a lot of people feel like we've seen this big move and they're all asking about selling. You know, how do you manage the trade? Is it time to sell? It seems like this from Todd. It seems like the environment could not get any better for energy stocks. It seems like there's some concern about that. Great point, Maggie. Great point. You know, I always say that we're traders here first. And like I was just tweeting back and forth with some of my friends, Zach and um, and Santiago Funds, Brent Johnson, um, I'm, I'm as light as I've been position-wise in energy um, that I have been for two years. And sort of this is one of the big rushes higher that I've been anticipating as a trader, you don't re- you reflexively look at this and say, oh, OK, you're going to take this thing away from the moving averages on me and poke it into new highs on a headline. As a trader, you've got one thing to do, and that's participate. So I participated. I've lightened up on a lot of my crude oil, and I think that that's the way that you manage this trade. I do think that you approach it from flat or long right now, but when the ducks are quacking and everything is running away from the moving averages and increments that you don't always see crude oil away from its moving averages during this move, like 25%, 30%, that's when as a trader, I close my eyes, I sell half, and if it goes higher, God bless. Yeah, instead of trying to chase it to the absolute top. We're never going to pick the top and sell everything at the highs, right? So we've got to manage it the whole way. Exactly. That's a that's always a concern. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Uh, David asking, no, sorry, Oliver asking, would love to get a hot take on uranium's recent move. Huge breakout yesterday, Sprout Uranium Trust. Um, clearly, the market is waking up to, r- number one, Russian supply coming potentially off the market. Number two, the ESG story getting blown apart. We're not going to run the world on wind and solar. God forbid if there's another uh, you know, extended conflict like there is um, in Russia, Ukraine right now, you can forget about all the ESG stuff. So a lot of that is really coming to a head and um, you know, at this really pivotal, pivotal excuse me, point in the market. Yeah. Are you watching coal at all, Tony? We have a question from Hef. Any thoughts on how high coal could go? Coal can go higher. You know, China, you know, China and Russia are doing a blatant look away on on, you know, the the race to carbon neutral in 2030. You know, they're just kind of they're, I, I call it they're pantomiming along. You know, they're had some, you know, they're they're making symbolic gestures and they're nodding their heads to neutrality, you know, 50 years out the road, just trying to be good international citizens. And the reality is, is that China is expanding their fossil fuel production like they're going to the electric chair, right? They're expanding their coal production. They're putting drills in the ground. They're opportunistically taking advantage of the U.S. shooting itself in the foot with its own energy policy and saying, we'll drill for oil. You know, it packs a lot of punch. Um, 
in terms of a base power. It packs a lot of punch in terms of powerful electricity. It's reasonably cheap to pull out of the ground. If the U.S. wants to leave that business, we're in. So, yeah, I think coal prices and, and fossil fuel prices can go higher until we break the back of the ESG movement, which may happen sooner rather than later. Um, Tony, you pointed out we have uh, State of the Union coming. I believe Powell is testifying in front of Congress. We got a big jobs report on Friday. We got a big inflation number next week. We have a Fed meeting coming up. You know, given all that we're talking about from the inflationary pressures and then this potential risk of recession, uh, should the scenarios play out in the way that both you and Marco are are talking about? ideas about Fed policy? And can we even look at the bond market for signals, given the fact that we're seeing safe havens and some other issues at play? Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there, right? I um, I don't have a lot of, I, I don't guess on, on Fed policy. I don't make, I don't venture as to what they're going to do. I, I let them do their thing and I try to react, you know, because I, I can't predict that kind of thing. I would imagine it feels like they're in a little bit of a pickle though now, Maggie, right? I mean, you know, they, if they raise rates too far, they really slow down the economy. We've got a tremendous inflation, risking stagflation. That's an issue. If they don't, if they don't raise rates, the inflation continues, and then nobody can spend because um, they can't afford the sticker shock of the commodities that they're trying to buy. That's a huge problem, right? Um, the Fed is going to have to figure this out. I would imagine that they're going to try to be a little bit two-faced and maybe raise rates and then do something that sounds more dovish. I don't know how it plays out. I'm just going to try to react to the markets. What do I think about if I can just pivot this to a market conversation a little bit? Because with my idea that the Fed is in an uncomfortable position, now that the technology market is undoubtedly in a dead on arrival position, in my opinion, breaking down below the moving averages, I think you got to really scrub your equity risk right now and make sure that you're well out of the way of the high-flying big tech stocks, the momentum names. And I got to feel like if you want to hide out, you probably want to be in the hard assets because if you look across the board at those charts, at your, you know, your energy sectors, metals and mining, even the gold market is perked up finally. Those sectors are on fire, and those moves look like they're moves that are just getting started rather than even moves that are in the middle inning. So those are not moves that I'm fading in any way. What I think I'm making sure of is that I'm not long any technology for this year. Yeah, great point. Uh, Tony, I know uh, uh, it's been crazy, and you, you got to get back to the terminal. Um, so thank you so much. And Marco, fantastic conversation, really thought-provoking. We so appreciate both of you being on today. Thanks so much. And thanks to all of you for watching. Um, we're going to continue to cover this story as it breaks and try to bring you the best information um, and outside-the-box thinking that we can. Ash is going to be back tomorrow with Darius Dale. You know they're going to dive deep. And as always, the conversation continues on the exchange. Take care. And Maggie, go great job keeping that conversation firing. Well, we're trying to get it all in, Tony. Trying to get it all in. Tremendous. Tremendous. Thanks, What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads.
Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.